Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. And it's great to see you on this Sunday morning. We're uh, making our way, as you can tell, through a series called Ask. We're examining the, uh, the basics of prayer and uh, coming again and again to the overarching theme. If you touch his heart, you're going to move his hands. And uh, it's been tremendous the last couple of weeks getting reports back from people who are uh, praying in ways like they've never prayed before, beginning to see God move, beginning to see God act in their lives. And uh, that is tremendously, tremendously exciting for me because God has more that he desires to do and more that he desires to give, more than we can ask or imagine, the New Testament says. And the way in which we access God's activity is through prayer. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter, no, James chapter 5. I wanted to preach out of Paul when I'm preaching out of James. James chapter 5, James chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 18. You'll find that on page 1013 in the worship Bible provided for you in the back of the chair in front of you. Unless you're seated on a front row, then the Bible is underneath you. There you go. I've, I'm still trying to find a good way to say all that, but I don't think I've found it yet. I don't think I've found it yet. Now, what we've seen thus far in our series is we've looked carefully at the purpose of prayer and we've looked at the power of prayer. We've said that the purpose of prayer is actually anchored in God-given relationship, that the, the purpose of prayer is not transactional. It isn't first to get something from God, but that the purpose of prayer is relational. It is first to encounter God in relationship and in fellowship as followers of Jesus. We looked secondly at the power of prayer, and we saw that the power of prayer is anchored in a God-given partnership with him and what he's about in this world here and now. Indeed, we've said that by God's design, prayer can have extraordinary power because prayer done out of relationship and done in partnership with God can touch the heart and move the hands of God like nothing else. I want us to continue our study today looking at James chapter 5. Let's read that together. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. James begins by asking a series of questions. And he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, key phrase, will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Today I want to speak to you about the practice of prayer. And specifically, I want to speak with you about the practice of powerful, effective prayer. Look, here's what I know. Once we become convinced that there is power associated with prayer, once we begin to understand that reality, almost immediately we begin to ask the question, well, if prayer has that kind of power, how can I begin to pray with that kind of power? Because without a doubt, in this room, there are people who have breakthroughs that they need to experience, problems for which they need solutions. You've got hearts. There are hearts in this room that are heavy for people whose lives you're watching fall apart, for people that, 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 for, for whom you have a, a great love, and you're, you're, you're wanting, you're asking God to intervene, to make a difference, to create a new situation, a new dynamic. Every single person in this room beyond a shadow of a doubt, has something they need God to get involved in, something that they need God to intervene in, every single person in this room. And if prayer has power, if it genuinely has power, if prayer actually gives us access, if you will, to the God of power, 
And God moves in response to certain kinds of prayers. What kinds of prayers are those kinds of prayers? But now, we ask that question, and those are legitimate questions, but there is a prior question. There is a deeper question that we need to ask in order to be able to ask the question, how can I pray with power? Or, or, or how does the prayer that works work is another way to say it. There's a prior question, and that prior question is this. What does God want of us in prayer? If prayer has power, and, and prayer has power only because God has power, and if we're going to top, tap into the power of prayer, we, we need to know what it is God wants or what, what it is God seeks as we offer it. We, we need to know what God expects of us as we pray and as we, we uh, uh, lay before him concerns. We, we need to know how it is that we are able, this is critical, watch now, how it is that we are able to connect with God in prayer. I want to disabuse you of the notion that somehow we, we've got to use prayer again to earn God's response. We, we don't earn God's response. Uh, quickly, remember, I've told you that if you're a follower of Jesus, you already are his child. You already have his full attention because you already have his full what? Affection. That's right. You already have his full attention because you already have his full affection. But the question we're asking here is not what do I have to do in order to get God to do something for me? That's back to transactional praying. We're talking about relational praying. What we're asking here is how do I connect with God? How do I actually meet with God in prayer? How do I meet him as I lay out my concerns before him? What does God want or expect as I pray? Now, our passage for the morning gives us a, a great set of answers to this question. As we see James giving direction for prayer and for praying, he helps us to understand three things, and, and, and I want you to uh, write these down. He helps us to understand, first of all, when prayer becomes powerful, when prayer is prayer and when prayer becomes actually powerful, when it becomes powerful or effective. Secondly, why prayers that are effective become effective. And then thirdly, how our prayers can be those kinds of prayers. When does prayer become powerful? Why prayer becomes powerful? And how our prayers can be those kinds of prayers. Anybody here got a problem? Does anybody in this section have a problem? <laughs> Does this section have any problems? Not the back, just the front? <laughs> front section, any problems? Okay, y'all got issues. Anybody here got issues? Yeah, all right. <laughs> How about in the back? See, you're slowing down my sermon by not responding more quickly. Even the guys behind the screen have got problems and issues and sermons. Y'all got sermons? No. Issues, problems, okay. You need to know this. You need to see this. Every person in this room has got an issue or problem that only God can, can address. You need this. You need this. You need this. When prayer becomes powerful, why prayers that are effective become effective, and how our prayers can be those kinds of prayers. Let's focus on the first today. When prayer becomes effective. Look at verses 13 through 16 again. Now, now let's walk through that. Let me unpack it for you. And notice how beginning in verse uh, 13. James begins with a series of questions and commands. Here we go. He says, is anyone among you suffering that is in trouble or distress from outside causes? What should you do? He says, let him pray, or better, that one should pray. Is any one of you cheerful that is in good spirits, feeling good? Let that person, James says, sing praise. In other words, this person should sing songs, what I call prayer songs of praise to God for who he is and for what he's done. Take your cheer, take your good spirits, and and uh, raise them, aim them to the heavens. Praise God for who he is and what he's done. 
Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. This is, this is the response of a sung prayer. Is anyone among you sick, experiencing a season of sickness? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let me pause here quickly and say here we have a picture of a person in the first century who is suffering an illness and is too sick to go to the elders and so sends for the elders to come to him, praying by his bedside, praying over him, laying hands on him while they pray. Evidently in the first century, the elders had a, a, of a church had a kind of dual role of caring not only spiritually for, for people but physically for, for people. And so that's what we see here along with the prayer is an anointing with medicinal oil that happens all at the same time. And they do both in the name of the Lord, meaning that they're coming with the, the anointing and the prayer with signifying an attitude. They're coming with an attitude that says, Lord, together, the sick person and, and the elders, we trust you, we seek you, we trust you for your answer to this illness. Now, that's an important practice and principle, but what is critical for our question for today comes next. Look with me at verse 15. And James says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, save him from dying, and the Lord will raise him up from the sick bed, restore him to physical vigor. And if he, the sick one, has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, here and elsewhere in the New Testament, there, there is a teaching that says that sin can be a cause of sickness. Not every sickness comes from sin, but sin can be a cause of sickness. And so when there is a sickness that comes into a believer's life, one of the valid responses of a believer to that sickness is and should be, Lord, all right, is there something going on in my life? Are you trying to get my attention? Now remember, remember, I didn't say every sickness was caused by sin. I didn't say that. What I said was sin can be a cause of sickness. Every time I find myself getting sick, whatever that is, I'm, I always go to that. That is my go-to. I, I will say that before I say, Lord, heal me. I'll say, get me through this flu uh, or whatever. Uh, I, I will always say, Lord, is there something in my life that you need to show me? Is there something that, that I, I'm missing here? Is there some place where I'm off? where I'm not listening to you, I find that God has my full attention when I'm sick. Have any of you found that? Do I have to go section by section again? <laughs> has anybody found that to be true? Yeah. <laughs> You're getting good. You're getting good. All right. Um, I've, I've always found that to be true. There's something about being flat on your back. Uh, that not only makes you physically look up, but makes you spiritually look up. Now notice, therefore, it says in verse 16, the Scripture says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. In other words, that is, get in the habit of admitting your sins, dealing with your sins, and, uh, and, and, and so forth with each other. Uh, deal with sin so sickness isn't as likely to come into your life. And pray for one another that you may be healed, spiritually and physically made well, whenever sin has led to sickness. Now, I, I want to pause and say quickly that anyone who has ever lost a loved one who has prayed fervently, you've got an issue with this passage, and it comes almost immediately. You come up immediately and go, yeah, but, yeah, but, and I don't understand. And uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I, I, I'll address that next Sunday. I'm not going to address it this Sunday, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But, but I'll address that. I'll address that. We'll speak to that next Sunday. Uh, but what I want you to see is, is the essence of the, of the uh, teaching that Paul is giving here regarding prayer. There's something that I want you to grasp. There's something that I want you to see that perhaps you've never seen before. Because James is making two fundamental points about prayers that have power. Prayers that have power. Now, let's just quickly step back and let's look at what he's told us already because this is important. He's taught us thus far that prayer is for all occasions when you're suffering, when you're cheerful, when you're sick, when you're sinful, that the first and best thing you should do in every situation is to pray. 
that uh, prayer ought to be the default response to every experience you have in life. That's part of what, what he's saying. He says, no matter what you're facing, you ought to be praying. No matter what you're facing, you ought to be praying. Great things, pray. Awful things, pray. Mundane things, pray. What should you do? Pray. This practice of living in prayer can have, is what he's saying, it can have real potential uh, for, for making a difference in your life and in the lives of others. As we live praying, prayer can, James says, ease or relieve suffering, take our times of cheer and multiply them. Prayer can bring healing from sickness, can bring forgiveness for sin, can bring people together, can restore relationships. So prayer is something we ought to do because prayer has such great potential. But there's something else that James says here. He, he shows us in this passage that it isn't just any kind of prayer that can ease or relieve suffering, take times of cheer and multiply joy, bring healing when there's sickness, bring forgiveness for sin, and bring a restoration of relationships. It isn't just any kind of prayer offered by any kind of person. But what he says is when it comes to the kind of prayer that can touch the heart and move the hands of God, two conditions are absolutely vital. Two conditions are absolutely vital. Now, okay, back up with me, back up with me, back up with me. Let's say it again. Here we go, here we go. Prayer is not transactional. God is not an ATM machine. I am not telling you that if you've got the right card and the right code, you punch it in and you're going to get your thousand bucks out of the machine. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. You're not going to punch the code in, put your card in, punch the code in, and get your, your, your three-car garage and a pony. It's not going to happen. Okay. Are we clear on that? That's not what I'm talking about. I've already taught you this, that if you are a child of God, you already have his attention because you already have his affection. You're not trying to get his attention. You already have his attention because you already have his affection. But what I am saying and what James is teaching us is that there are certain conditions that God requires in order to meet us in prayer. And those conditions are what give prayer the real possibility and potential of power. Does that make sense? These are conditions. These are not, okay, God, now I've done one, two, three. Now you owe me. This is, this is not what we're talking about. This is meeting God as he really is. There's some conditions. What, what are the conditions? James tells us there must be, for prayer to have power, there must be faith and there must be a second faithfulness. The prayers that have power are always accompanied by faith and are given by people who are faithful. And where there is faith and faithfulness, God's power flows. Those who are faithful and those who are faith-filled, to put it in a different way, touch the heart of God and move his hands. All right. All right. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if I could say, now we found the answer to our question, what does God want of us in prayer? Faith and faithfulness. You've already got the answer. You've already got the point of the sermon today. God desires prayers that are faith-filled and faithful. Go ahead and put that on the screen for me. God desires prayers that are faith-filled and faithful. And wouldn't it be an amazing thing at Center Grove if this were the end of the sermon? Somebody say amen. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? You guys wouldn't know what to do with yourselves, would you? You'd be going up to the usher saying, I want my money back. <laughs> hey, hey, let me have that, let me have that buck back. I, this wasn't worth a buck. Wouldn't that be amazing? It ain't going to happen. It is not going to happen. Lean over to your neighbor and say, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Why? Well, let me tell you, there are two reasons why. Because, first of all, 
This is the very heart of prayer that makes a difference. And there is no way for me to unpack this for you in one sermon. And, and so what I want to do is I want to propose that we break this up we spend some time today looking at faithfulness, and then we come back next week and talk about faith. Does that sound like a plan? All right, that sounds good. All right, so that's what we're going to do, because if we don't get this, we will never experience the lives nor the prayer life that God desires for us. And my heart for you is this that you would learn to live your life full of prayer and that what would be normal for you is seeing God always at work as a consequence of your prayer, not always in ways that you expect, but always at work. The prayer would become for you a vital aspect of your life, so vital that you, you couldn't conceive of living without it. That your first reaction when joy comes is prayer. And your first reaction when that phone rings and there is tragedy, your first reaction is prayer. And when you're just doing the mundane things of life, your mind naturally goes to prayer because you are absolutely convinced that prayer has power, that you need what only God can give. Prayer gives access to that, and you have decided you don't want to live without God at work around you. So that's why I want to park and break this up. I want to look together with you at faithfulness. And, and I want you to see why prayers become effective when they're made by, prayer, by faithful people. And then I want you to see with me how our prayers can become effective prayers by way of faithfulness. So that means that I want us to look closely at the end of verse 16 where James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Say that with me. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. All right, let's say it again. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's say it again. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now let's say it like we mean it. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's say it one more time like we like it. All right, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. You know, school hasn't started yet. It's coming. You're maybe just tired from the summer, and you're ready to get back at it, I guess, right? Here we go. Let's say it one more time like, like we love this principle. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, that is an amazing statement. James tells us that the prayer of a righteous person can't help but produce powerful results with God in this world wherever that prayer is directed. Now, isn't that the kind of prayer you'd like to have? And the answer is yes. I, I need a breakthrough. I've got a, a loved one who's hurting. I, I, I'd like to have that kind of prayer. Our world is in a mess. I'd like to have that kind of prayer. I'm facing a, a situation, and I don't have an answer for it. I'd like to have that kind of prayer. Well, listen carefully, listen carefully, listen carefully. James says here in this verse that prayer, the, that the prayer of a righteous person can't help but produce powerful results. Now, to understand this, we've got to understand what righteousness is exactly. We need to know who the righteous is and what exactly is a righteous life because righteousness is a good church word, of course, but not one we always understand like we need to. Uh, just for our purposes today, righteous means moral blamelessness, moral blamelessness, moral blamelessness. The person living a morally blameless life has great power, the prayer of a person with a morally blameless life has great power as it is working. Moral blamelessness. Now, who is righteous? Who is righteous is the question that immediately comes. 
The Bible has for us a, a clear answer for that. The Bible says the one who is righteous is only God himself. God is morally blameless. He is himself the definition of righteousness. He, what he does and how he does it defines what is morally correct or what is morally right. God is the measure of righteousness. God is the measure of righteousness. He is morally blameless, and so he is the, by, by, uh, in the, what he does and in who he is, he is the definition of all that is right and good and true. Now, there we have it. It's not sounding very hopeful then, is it, that we're going to have powerful prayers. Anybody here self-righteous? Don't make me go sick. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> have you? Okay, okay, here we go. Anybody in this section known anybody who is self-righteous? Come on over here, come on over here. Anybody here known anybody who is self-righteous? Okay, see, it's anybody here? Anybody here been self-righteous? Okay, good. <laughs> well, let me talk to you about this just for a moment. <laughs> that was not fair. That was not fair. That was not fair. You know what the problem with self-righteousness is, don't you? A self-righteous person uses themselves as the measure of what is right and wrong. And that's why they're so irritating. They're never wrong. They are the standard of what is right and wrong. I decide. So you marry this guy. You thought he was Mr. Right. You discover after you married him, his first name is Always. There's always a few who get it late. <laughs> Self-righteousness is an extraordinarily dangerous condition because it masks the fact that only God is righteous and the only definition of morals, of goodness, comes from God and God alone. I don't get to choose what is right and what is wrong, what is good or what is true. God is himself the definition of what is right and good and true. So, so far, James's advice for prayer is not helping. Because the only one who now can pray with power is God himself because only God is righteous. And that is our fundamental problem. The Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not what? One. The Scripture says, describing all of us, no one understands, no one ever really truly seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does truly good, not even one. And it is this lack of righteousness, of course, that created and creates a separation between humanity and a righteous God. This has been our fundamental problem. We aren't righteous. We have sinned. We're morally blameworthy rather than being morally blameless. And so we're in a quandary. Thankfully, The gospel is the declaration that human beings can be declared righteous and restored to a relationship with God. The Bible is very clear that those who place their trust in Jesus and in his death on the cross for their sins are declared righteous by God or justified by God. We are justified by faith as we place our trust in Christ as Savior, as our Redeemer, and as we affirm, I believe Christ's death was for me, that by his death my sin can be taken away and can be forgiven. When we take that step by faith, God declares us morally blameless. How does he do that when I'm not? 
He declares us blameless by taking the righteousness, the moral blamelessness of the sinless Christ and placing it on us while at the same time taking our blame and placing it on Christ so that the greatest transaction, you want to talk about transactions? The greatest transaction that ever took place was the transaction that took place on the cross of Jesus Christ where my sin, yeah, that's good. Where my sin was replaced with his righteousness. Ah, ah, oh, okay. I get it now, James. I get it, I get it, I get it. Every believer can be a powerful prayer because they've now been declared righteous. Isn't that what he means? Mm, no. Mm, no. Let's, let's keep pressing into this. Let's keep pressing into this. Now, this justification that happens when we come to faith in Christ is followed by something called sanctification. And sanctification has to do with the pursuit of righteousness. Now, watch this. Sanctification has to do with the pursuit in life of the righteousness that God has already seen and declared us to be. Sanctification is the pursuit of a holy life, the holy life that God calls us to after we've come to Him in Christ by faith. And what God says to us after he has declared us righteous in Christ is he calls us to a holy life and he says to us, I want you to be in reality what I see when I see you in Christ. Does that make sense? I want you to be righteous I see you as righteous in Christ, but now I'm calling on you to be what I see. I want you to be what I see. I want you to be the righteousness that I see. I want you to learn. I want you to grow. I want you to develop to become morally blameless. Now, let me pause and say, what we're talking about is living the righteous life, living a righteous life. Living a righteous life. Now watch. A person can be declared righteous and in the eyes of God be righteous forever his, forever his child, his son, his daughter, but not be living a righteous life. This one should not expect to have prayers that are filled with power. When... when uh, uh, James says the prayers of a righteous man, he's, what he's referring to there is, are powerful and effective. He's, he's speaking to the prayers of a man or a woman who is seeking to be what God sees in the strength that Christ gives. They're seeking to live a righteous life. Now, righteousness is not perfection. Righteousness is not perfection. A righteous life is not a perfect life. That's never going to happen until Christ comes again and we're, we're finally experience all that he has for us. How many of you are ready to see, uh, see yourself perfect? <laughs> Y'all are making me work way too hard. Hey, ushers, bring them their money back. Let's go. No. A righteous person um, is not a perfect person. I'll tell you what a, what a righteous person is. A righteous person is a persistent person. When God calls me to be what he sees, he's calling me to be persistent in my pursuit of the holiness he's already given me in Christ. He wants me to live it out. Does that make sense? I want you to be what I see. And that's why from the Old Testament to the New, God says, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. I'm calling you in Christ to be what I see when I see you. 
And it is that person who is living not perfectly, but who is living persistently saying, God, what you see, I want to be. What you see, I want to be. What you see, I want to be. I want to be more like Christ in my marriage, in my family, in the words that I say, in the thoughts that I think. I want to be what you see. I want to be what you see. I want my attitudes and my actions to more and more and more fall in line with the attitudes and the actions of Christ. I want to be, my heart is, I want to be what you see. And the person who is living that life is the person who begins to discover the power of God attending their prayers. Let's dig into that a little more. Why is that true? Well, it really shouldn't surprise us because as we've seen, the power of God and the power of prayer flows when there is a partnership with God as God in His sovereignty as He chooses to let us partner with Him in His work in the world here and now. If God is a holy God, what kind of a partner would you expect Him to see? in the work that he's doing. A holy partner, right? And so among those who've been declared righteous, he's looking for those who are in pursuit of being what he sees. And this is the person who has access to his heart and is able to move his hands because they're reflecting more and more the holiness that he is and the holiness that he has. Powerful prayers come out of a life that is being lived in agreement with God and his will. He's always looking, always listening, always looking, always listening for those who have a heart to be what he sees. You've already got his attention. You've already got his affection. You want his action? His action comes when there is this persistent pursuit of holiness in your life. It says, I want to be what you see. And the righteous, those who are living righteous are urgent about this. They, they know they need his power for living. They know they can't partner with him in this life without his power flowing through them. And that is why Proverbs 15 says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. He, he acts on the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 34 says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he acts. He delivers them out of their troubles. Why? Why? Why are the prayers of the righteous living in righteousness so powerful? The, the, the answer is very, very simple. Being declared righteous by faith in Christ gives us a relationship with God. Living in righteousness through Christ gives us a real partnership with God. When I'm praying that way, God knows he can trust me. When, when my heart, when I'm, when I'm working hard to, to line my life with, with the life of Jesus, when, when I'm working hard to line my attitudes, and, and any time they get off, I'm, I'm adjusting them because I... I I realize the power of sin to throw my life out of alignment with, with the life of God. When I, when I realize that and I'm constantly adjusting my life to line up with his, I'm, I'm essentially saying to God, God, you can trust me. I want to be a faithful partner with you in what you're doing in this world. I'm not playing a game where I, I, I'm going, God, here, this is what I need. Well, I've got sin that I'm hanging on to. I'm not playing this game going, okay, like a, an omniscient God can't see the sin. I'm trying to hide behind my back. Why do we play that? What word should I use? Foolish, does that work for you? 
Yeah, you think so? Why do we use that foolish strategy? I have another word for it, but every time I say it, mothers say, please don't say the S word, S-T-U-P-I-D. Foolish, that works. All right. Why do we, why do we do that? As if an omniscient God, you've been praying, you've been asking God for a breakthrough, you, you've, been, you've been asking God to work and move in your life, and some of you have charged God with being unfaithful, and some of you have said prayer doesn't work, and some of you have said prayer is a joke. No, God hasn't failed. Prayer is no joke. You just haven't prayed. Oh, yes, I have. Oh, yes. No, 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 no. Not the kind of prayers that have power. Because you, you can't have the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you, constantly tapping you on the shoulder, saying, hey, 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 you got this in your life. This needs to go. This can't stay. You're grieving me. You're breaking my heart. Christ didn't die for this. You're going, nah, it's not a big deal. Stop bothering me about it. It's not hurting anybody. Prayer doesn't work that way because God doesn't work that way. When he says, be holy, for I am holy, what he's saying is, I am more for you. Anything that isn't holy is going to hurt you. If you're going to be whole, you, you need to be holy, well, strong. See, the reason God hates sin is because, and I've taught you this, is because of what it does to people. Sin destroys, it tears down. Oh, I know, I know, I know. It feels great at the beginning. You think you're getting away with it. It always gets you in the end. One lie leads to another lie, leads to another lie, leads to lots of stress, broken relationships, all kinds of failures in your life. You, you know the drill. You know the drill. It, it never works. Prayer doesn't work that way. God has more and he desires more and he says, ask. 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 But, but don't be playing this game with me. I need a partner. Now, you're a junior partner, but a partner. I need somebody who comes with a heart that says, I want to be as much in line with you as I can be. I want to be faithful. Christ deserves the best life I can live and the strength that he gives. Now, I can't live, I can't live like Christ on my own. But I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Line up my life. Loved ones, loved ones, loved ones. This is where the power comes from. As God says, I see you seeking to be what I see. You know what that means? I know I can trust you. I can begin to work, and you're going to be faithful as I work. Because I do have some things I want to do in your family. I do have some things I want to do in your marriage. I do have some things I want to do in your relationships. I do have some things I want to do on the job. I've, I've got some things for you, but you've got to quit playing this game with me. The unfaithful can't pray powerful prayers. I don't work that way. See, here's, here's, here's what happens. 
If we try to pray that way, then we keep sinning our lives. Instead of experiencing His loving power flow through our lives, what we get is His loving pressure. The Spirit of God continues to convict, continues to work. We're wanting His power. He keeps applying pressure. And sometimes we misunderstand the pressure of God saying, that's not why I sent my son. That's not why I sent my son. I I didn't send my son so that you can say anything you want to say, feel any way you want to feel, and just throw up a quick prayer and say, forgive me. I didn't send my son so you could uh, sleep with everybody under the sun. I didn't send my son for that. You belong to me. Oh, no, he's talking about sex. Well, here, I'll, I'll get to money in a minute. It'll get worse. I didn't save you for you to hoard all of your money and your resources as if it was all for you and only for you and meant to bless only you. That's not why I sent my son to die. I sent my son to take hurting, broken people and heal them and make them whole. And I made you whole so that you could get in on what I'm doing and redeeming a lost and broken world. I want you to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, Look, 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 look. You want pressure or you want power? I think at the end of the day, for followers of Jesus, you're going to live with one or the other. If you live with sin in your life and you don't deal with it, you're constantly be, you will constantly be living under his pressure. Come back to me. You promised me. You made covenant with me. You said you were mine. You said you would follow me. You said you would love me. You said you'd be faithful to me. You live with pressure or you'll experience power. Doesn't doesn't Christ doesn't Christ deserve our faithfulness? Doesn't he? Don't we uh, kind of owe him? Our faithfulness in answer to his extraordinary faithfulness to us. I mean, look at the stuff going on in your life that you know isn't right, shouldn't be there. Doesn't he deserve better than that? Shouldn't we give him better than that? Or is the cross just a a nice gesture? 
Maybe that's all it is. Maybe that's all it is. Just a really nice gesture. Maybe that's it. That's all it is. You don't need to get rid of that stuff. It was just a nice gesture. Doesn't really mean all that much anyway. (laughs) Do with my money what I want to do with it. I'll do with my body what I want to do with it. I'll have whatever attitude I want to have. I've been declared righteous. It doesn't matter anymore. It was a nice gesture. Secure eternity from me. There we go. Not that big of a deal. Just a cross. Happened a long time ago. I don't have to be what he sees. Remember I taught you uh, that the Attitude and the posture of prayers, Lord, here's all my life. Here's my need. I trust you. Remember I taught you that? It's really, really important when we say, here's all my life. Here's my need that we check our hands. And make sure they aren't carrying some stuff. It has no business being in the hands of a father of the Jesus who died on the cross to take broken, sinful men and women and make them clean. Unless, of course, that cross is no big deal. Father, by your Holy Spirit, I want to ask you to do what only you can do. Show us what's in our hands. Show us what's in our hands. Show us what's in our lives that doesn't belong there, has no business there the hatred, the grudges, the persistent anger, the callousness, the lovelessness, the selfishness, the jealousy, the envy, the stubbornness. God, show us. Scripture says, with heads bowed and eyes closed, Scripture says, holiness is the great secret to wholeness. 
if you're a follower of Jesus, as you sit before the Lord here, what does he show you? Stands in the way of your being what he sees. Right now, name it. Name it. Face it. Don't argue or explain it. Speak the truth about it. That it's wrong. It should not be there. It needs to go. step in and stop something or start something then confess it own it as wrong and unworthy of Christ say it my anger is unworthy of Christ my lust is unworthy of Christ my porn is unworthy of Christ My sex life is unworthy of Christ. My language, my envy, my jealousy, my fear. what they could be and we so often are living powerless without prayer without prayer that makes any difference God bring cleansing God bring cleansing do a fresh work among your people and set our hearts on the pursuit of holiness so that we can be what you see when you see us. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining me today. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.